Welcome to Sky Women. I'm your host, Dr. Carolyn Moyers, a wife, mom, and board-certified OB-GYN. This is a place to educate, empower, and inspire. Join us each week as we share the power of women's stories. Real women, real stories, real inspiration. Put on your stretchy pants. Let's get going. Welcome to another episode of Sky Women. You guys, I am so excited that you're here today because we have with us Dr. Heather Hirsch. And if you have been under a rock, you may not know who she is. So let me introduce her. Dr. Heather Hirsch is a board certified internal medicine specialist with fellowship training in women's health at the Cleveland Clinic. And her specialty is all about this midlife that we as women go through. Menopausal hormone therapy, contraception, family planning, breast health, sexual dysfunction, urine incontinence. This is kind of where she lives. And she has a fabulous podcast called Women's Health by Heather Hirsch. If you haven't checked it out, I highly recommend it. I actually recommended it to a patient today, Dr. Hirsch. Welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you. I am so excited to be on your podcast with special guest, Baby Brody. Baby Brody is in tow. (laughs) Sometimes the baby's got to eat. (laughs) Exactly. And sometimes us women got a podcast. So absolutely. Absolutely. Mama's got to do what she's got to do. And so sometimes babies come along. (laughs) Yes. Well, I reached out to you because I love the work that you're doing, the educational content that you're putting out around this area of life that is such a challenging phase for women. And in my clinical experience, just seeing women being taken advantage of in this midlife time of peri and postmenopause. And so I just love what you are bringing to the world. Thank you for sharing this. Oh, thank you. You know, it really was during my fellowship training in specialized women's health that I realized this was such a gap in care in women's health. And just like many of us, and we were talking before we jumped on that training is lacking. I, I too had the same type of training that misinforms a lot of the clinicians that are currently practicing. And was during my fellowship that my eyes were open to just the mistreatment, misdiagnosis, inaccuracies, mm-hmm. and harms that were being done to women in midlife and menopause. And so that's really where my passion stemmed. And then I just thought like, every woman needs to know this. Why is this stuff that is not freely available? Yes, absolutely. And I feel like women in that this in midlife come in and they're like, I'm tired. I'm not sleeping well. I've got the hot flashes. I'm eating great. I'm exercising. I'm doing all the things that I used to do, but nothing's working. Mm-hmm. 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 Ugh, it's such a common thing. And to that point, so many women think that it's, it means that they're doing something wrong. They haven't oh, done totally. the right they haven't, you know, taken the right supplements yet, or they haven't uh, found the right position to sleep or the right exercise to do. And we're constantly in, in a society bombarding women with messages of um, youthfulness and health, but yet we've completely ignored the fact that your body will completely change irreversibly. Not that it's bad or good. It's just as irreversibly going to change after right. our hormones are or after our, I always say after our ovaries retire. <laughs> yes. Yes. 
<laughs> Somebody asked me today, will they actually shrivel up and like die? Like they go away. I'm like, not necessarily. <laughs> they do get smaller. <laughs> they do not get reabsorbed into your abdomen. <laughs> they do not disappear. <laughs> right. Yeah. So let's talk about just those common menopausal symptoms. And as you were saying that, I was thinking, you know, women thinking they've done something wrong. Also thinking like from a sexual standpoint that there's this mismatch in desire and they think that something's wrong with them when in actuality, you know, their body is going through these changes. They've got all these mixed messages about what they should look like and what they actually, what actually is going on with their body and how they feel in their own body image. Right. But also Mm -hmm. they've done all the work all day, right. Whether they're working outside of the home or in the home, taking care of the kids, homework, dinner, et cetera. And now sex and sleep are in competition. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Absolutely. And you know, on that very topic, you know, research shows that women in their forties have some of the lowest kinds of libido and low desire, but actually care very little. And, you know, that certainly could be because of the environmental things that you just said. And then as we go into our fifties, that desire remains low, but we start to care a little bit more. And maybe that's because children are leaving the house or empty nesters. And so sexual concerns or changing libido or pain with intercourse are some of the big symptoms, very common symptoms, as well as, you know, typical things like hot flashes, night sweats, insomnia, anxiety, weight gain. And then there's also some more uncommon symptoms, but certainly are things that I see like vertigo, dizziness, um, nausea, new onset of allergies, skin changes, and some other kind of, you know, joint aches and pains, I would say rare, but they're not, to me, they're not really rare. But then again, I kind of get to see the full spectrum of things doing menopause day in and day out. Right, right. So many symptoms. And I feel like women truly think like something is broken. Like I've just, I'm falling apart here. I can't really define it. And it truly is this menopausal transition that we go through. And so the average age of menopause is 51, but symptoms and the duration of symptoms last about how long? Yeah. So, you know, there certainly there's this idea that menopause is this one year. And while that may be factually technically right by the textbook, menopause is defined as actually the day, the day where it's been 12 months of no period, but the menopause transition and symptoms of low estrogen can last on average five to seven years. Yeah. And then I think where most internists, you know, seem to get this wrong is that symptoms can really start in perimenopause. So a woman may say this to her internist, maybe not her OBGYN because she may say, I'm fatigued, I'm gaining weight, I'm losing hair, I'm having hot flashes. So an internist may be the first person or a family doctor or her gynecologist. And, you know, people say, oh, no, 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 that's, you know, you're you're too young for that. You can't be in menopause. You're you're still having periods. You know, it's probably... X, Y, or Z, when really we're missing the mark and it's perimenopause. Menopause is like ugly cousin that, you know, <laughs> it's like the whole, a whole other, whole other thing, really. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so what are your best recommendations for how to support women in that perimenopausal phase where, you know, they're not technically menopausal, but they're having a lot of the symptoms? Yeah. Well, you know, I like to think of this like, in two different ways. First, like advice for lay women, and then secondarily, advice for clinicians. Right. Because just like we were saying, it's not that I received some magical medic education in med school that my colleagues didn't. 
I really learned this through my fellowship training, which actually I wasn't even really prepared for. I, I was really interested in contraception and, and postpartum care, but I realized that this was the area that we were missing the most information. But back to the question you asked me, you know, for patients, I always say, Education is key. And unfortunately, uh, our clinicians still need to be educated. So following good accounts or following sites that promise you, you know, and and demonstrate evidence-based and up-to-date information that's accurate and that's backed by clinical studies is great. And, And while that sounds very fancy, another easy thing to do is just journal and track. And so Definitely by just simply journaling when your periods are coming, um, as they may be coming, becoming irregular and tracking any symptoms that go along with that, be it migraines or moodiness or hot flashes, that is gold. And for our clinicians, it's really to come at things with a little bit more of an open mind and really just understanding that perimenopause and menopause is a long and chronic I guess, condition. And even if you're not quite sure what to do, you know, being very careful not to dismiss women or, you know, simply by saying, if I'm not sure what to do here, I want to send you to someone who might know. And while there's not a ton of us, there are certainly, you know, people who feel a lot more comfortable interpreting symptoms or explaining labs and managing symptoms of perimenopause and menopause. And so that's kind of my two-pronged advice for both lay women and clinicians. Yes. Great advice. Okay. So when we talk about treatment, let's break this down because patients come in and they go, my hormones are off. I want to get my hormones checked, which is like Mm -hmm. Pandora's box. (laughs) It totally is. Yes. So where do you like to start with that? And I always say we treat the symptoms, not necessarily the labs, but sometimes it's nice to have like a foundation of where, where we're starting. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely agree. It's so much better. I always say, you know, a perfect diagnosis is great, but right underneath that, if we can't get a perfect diagnosis, because it could be perimenopause, late perimenopause, early menopause, PMDD, we don't know. Right underneath that is let's get you feeling really, really good because it might take a few years or it might even be like a decade where we look back and say, ah, I bet that's when you were going through early menopause. And we might not know because it is retrospective. So let's treat the symptoms. And certainly there's kind of two big buckets of treating symptoms. There's FDA approved hormone therapy of which we only want to use FDA approved hormone therapy of which there's many different options, including bioidentical FDA approved hormones. And I know Brody is chiming in. Yes. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) He's got the musical interlude. Exactly. I know. So yes, we, we are working women to, to the 10th degree, right? <laughs> or if it's not FDA for hormone therapy, it's non-hormonal therapy. And certainly those are, of course, in the buckets. Prescription medication, certainly there's lifestyle and supportive care. But most of the time, by the time you're coming to see your doctor, you might be at the point, you know, often, but not always, you might be at the point where at least for what you may be looking for from your clinician is some direction and knowing what those prescription options are, especially if symptoms are pretty severe. Right. Which brings me to the topic of pellets, which I know where you stand on this and I am like, I'm in your corner, (laughs) but let's talk about this. Well, everyone always wants to know, are you, are you going to do pellets or what's your position on pellets? And I am very uncomfortable with pellets because I can't, I, I'm not certain of what is in the pellet and they're, how they're going to react to the dosing and it can't be taken back. And 
right. just makes me very nervous. Exactly. You know, I always say that I certainly can understand where pellets became very popular. There was a gap in care for women and they were symptomatic and looking for answers. And because for a while there, clinicians didn't really know what to do or didn't know what to prescribe and maybe still don't, right? Right. This industry arose of injecting basically a whopping amount of estrogen and progesterone into your touch and leaving it there for three months, which, you know, doesn't sound ideal. But when that's really the only option you have, as a woman, you know, we're trying to find the answers. We're trying to treat our symptoms. And so that kind of makes sense. And oftentimes the very first time or first round or second round, you're finally going to feel so much better. Right. But the problem is that they're not FDA approved and they're not as efficient and they're not as safe as our FDA approved options. But the marketing is to lead women to believe that both of those are not true, that they are safer and that they are more efficient or effective. And, and that where is wherein lies the problem is that these are not reliable and certainly not well-studied um, because they're not FDA approved. So they're not studied in large clinical trials. And lots of times there can be an imbalance of those hormones. And so things that I see from pellets are first uterine cancer, particularly if, you know, of course, if you have a uterus and your estrogen and progesterone are imbalanced or right. massive amounts of testosterone, which can lead to hair loss, acne that can cause permanent scarring, permanent deepening of your voice. Cause this is what we use when people are transitioning mm -hmm. permanent enlargement of your clitoris. We also have no idea, but I can't suspect that it's positive. The benefit, the, the effects of that testosterone on your heart, on your breast tissue, on your bones. And there is some serious health risks that we do not know about that, that, you know, as you think through them as a clinician, you, you can't imagine that they're really good to be overdosing women with testosterone. And so therein lies the problem. So, you know, and I think, how do we solve this problem? I really do think it goes back to, we have to educate our physicians to better understand FDA-approved hormone therapy so that women aren't left to try to figure out on their own what's the right way to feel better? Yeah, absolutely. Because it, it, you're absolutely right that there has become this huge marketing that is selling to women's fears and insecurities as they're going through this stage and they don't have the support that they need. And so it takes providers, it takes physicians who are really passionate about this, who are educated about this to really make a difference for women. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I, I'm very honored and excited and take it very seriously to be one of the people doing so. And it's things like this podcast and all the advocacy you do for women's health and others in this sphere, even in Instagram that have really changed, really, I mean, I know you've seen it too. It's, it's really changed women's perspective or changed someone's behavior and it makes it all worth it. Absolutely. Right. Because I mean, Instagram, everybody's doing pro bono, right? <laughs> <laughs> the majority of us are spending our time and hours trying to figure out how to educate the public on these platforms. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. When, when do we start to get paid for those efforts? <laughs> I know, you know, it's funny. It's a, it's a, it's an interesting side topic, but certainly it is true that this, these things that we do are really a big public service to women and women's health is not something that is you know, a niche, it is in and of itself its own subject. And the message is 
do need to get out. And by gosh, wouldn't it be cool if someone wanted to fund some of us doing all this? We could get our message to more people because sometimes I open my Instagram and I'm like, wow, I'm so excited. There's a hundred more people on my Instagram account. But imagine there's hundreds of thousands of women who are yeah. not seeing my account or your account or other people's accounts. But right. we're just going to change lives one at a time because that's just, <laughs> that's what we're going to do. That's what we're going to do. Right. Well, so what is so unique about you, I believe, is that you're going beyond the exam room, right? You could only impact so many people in your clinic, right? But now you have a course and you're on Instagram and you've got the podcast. And so on a much greater scale than you ever could, just practicing average academic medicine, right? You have created this brand to support women and it's amazing. Yeah, that, thank you. That it, it is true. It is really a passion of mine. I always say, you know, I think to myself, I have such a satisfying career. It's such a delight to really help women through their menopausal journey. And while I can only help maybe 30 people a week, which, which isn't bad. Yeah. Imagine there's 50 million women going through the menopause transition at any given time. Right. So thinking about how we as clinician educators, where that's our passion and that's our expert, thinking about how we can have a greater impact is so important. Oh, baby. Oh, and be mothers at the same time, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Poor Brody. Oh, poor Brody. This is what happens when you have a working mom. My kids are going to know more about menopause than they ever really needed to know. So. Oh, friend, yes. Like my my kids, my five-year-old reported to his little brother that he could not be pregnant with a baby like mommy was because he did not have a uterus. <laughs> oh my gosh, you must have been so proud. I was. We were at a birthday party and he was like just spouting off this information. They were like spoken like a true gynecologist child. Oh, <laughs> What a defining moment for you, I'm sure. Yes. <laughs> okay, let's bring it back to labs and testosterone. I've got two questions about this. So what labs yes. do you typically recommend? Yeah. So, you know, I kind of explained this in two ways. You know, really, if you're menopausal, let's say you're coming to my office and you say, well, I haven't had a period in, you know, 15 months and... Uh, I'm considering hormone therapy or I'm really symptomatic. Do I need any labs? Well, no, because labs aren't going to tell me anything else. I already know you're postmenopausal. Right. So your FSH is going to be high. Your right. estrogen and your testosterone are going to be low. So I don't need them to start treatment. Now, I always say, but hey, if you want to check your estradiol, and definitely if we're going to start testosterone, which we might not have time to touch on, but if we're going to start testosterone, definitely let's check your testosterone because I want to make sure that it's not already high, which, you know, it almost never is, but you want to right. check. And then estrogen is going to be, be between zero and 20 and testosterone is usually very close to between zero and 20 also, you know, sometimes 30, but they're both quite low. Now those levels, however, are very helpful if a woman doesn't have periods. So if she's got a progesterone releasing IUD or she's had an ablation or a hysterectomy and isn't using her periods, that FSH and the estradiol are going to be very helpful to me, right. along with symptoms and determining where she is. Right. Now, if you're perimenopausal and you're still bleeding, a lot of women want to check their hormones. And I, I really, I've thought about this a lot. And I always, you know, say this, my hormones feel imbalanced or my hormones are out of whack. 
is something right. that women experience every day. Our hormones are always in flux. Our estrogen's always right. going up and down and right. progesterone's doing the opposite. So checking your labs at any given time when you're menstruating still, despite its frequency is, is useful, but I always say about 80% of how we're going to make that diagnosis is what you tell me, your history and your symptoms, and maybe 10 to 15% is going to be your lab work. And maybe the other five to 10 is just going to be how you respond to whatever treatment we try. So right. labs are kind of like icing on the cake. It's really a clinical diagnosis. So as the clinician, I decide. <laughs> But, you know, a lot of times women can feel very discouraged because they'll say, my doctor told me I, I didn't need labs or that they weren't going to be helpful. And we don't want to replay that trauma. We don't want to send the same message. Right. But it would be helpful if that clinician told them why they aren't necessarily helpful. Right. And I always give them the option to because, hey, it's not going to hurt anyone to know what your estrogen is or where your FSH is. And oftentimes more points on a graph can be helpful, but it is very confusing because perimenopause is a little different than diagnosing diabetes. Diabetes, right. we know you've got a threshold A1C and once you cross it, you have diabetes. But right. perimenopause and menopause are simply much different. And so much of it is based on your symptoms and your bleeding and your, you know, um, how we want to help. And then thinking about, how we want to treat you. So just like circling back to what we said, maybe 15 minutes ago is like a diagnosis is always the best thing. It's, it's, it's so great, but right smack dab underneath that. If I can't get a crystal clear diagnosis, I want to make you feel better and improve right. your quality of life. Right. So when we're talking about quality of life, then that brings up testosterone because that is a hot topic for women. There are testosterone clinics popping up all over the place. Women uh -huh. are wanting to get their pellets. So when and how do you like to prescribe testosterone? So this is a great question and it will probably evolve over time, but I do follow what NAMS recommends. So NAMS stands for the North American Menopause Society, as you know, but your listeners may not have heard about NAMS before. And NAMS did do a really nice study on uh, postmenopausal women and the use of testosterone. And it's hard to study testosterone because it's not FDA approved. But what they did really find is that it can be helpful for libido and desire. Now, is it helpful for things like energy, muscle mass, fatigue? You know, I don't know. Right now, I still sort of say maybe. And how right. I tend to use testosterone is this. I'm really only going to start it if your main problem is low libido. I'm not really going to say, if you come into my office and say, I feel fatigued, I'm gaining weight. The first thing I'm not going to do is testosterone. But because that just doesn't make sense. There's not enough data to show that that's the right thing yet. But right. if we've kind of gone down the list, maybe we started estrogen, maybe we've gotten your sleep better and your desire is still a little low, or maybe the energy is just still a little low. I like to prescribe a very low dose of daily topical testosterone. Now it needs to be compounded because it's not FDA approved. What NAMS recommends is a 10th of a dose of androgel. So for women who know about androgel, your partner may be using that, that's a male. So you can also use a teeny, teeny, teeny dose of male gel and uh, that then I watch the testosterone very closely. It should never go even what's above normal for a female. So those levels should never go above 55 or 60. Whereas for pellet injections, I see levels of 
200 or even 500. These are male levels of testosterone. And, and that's what happens when you inject something that can't be undone for three months. I mean, what a scary thing for a female. So you could certainly do testosterone topically in a daily preparation that I think is much safer. And then finally, what I do is if there's no improvement in six weeks in terms of libido or the other outcomes, maybe that were just like low hanging fruit and there's no change, then we stop it because it's just simply not going to help. You don't increase the dose. You're not bumping them up. You're not trying to get them to the super therapeutic level. No, no. You know, there's two, I will use like, uh, I, I always kind of say there's a low dose, there's a high dose. So I do use like two different doses. So on occasion, maybe I will bump up. But when I'm saying bump up, those levels should still never be above, you know, 50, maybe 60. You know, I really don't even like to get close to those, you know, high end level of normal for women because I just can't be sure that it's doing what it's supposed to do and it's not going to harm you. I agree completely. And I've seen really good success with the, the androgel. You know, I think that that's a, a great approach because it can be adjusted and you have a little more control than something that might even cause scarring on your rump. You know, when you're <gasps> injecting these pellets, it creates scarring. I know, I know. And it, it just, it, it, it certainly, in all honesty, is something that keeps me up at night is this desire <laughs> to help women know that they have other options but it's so unfortunate that we kind of have to go about this by first teaching women at the same time as we're retraining our clinicians because it's unfortunate they don't have to learn the right path for diabetes or they don't have to learn the right path for something also very common high blood pressure but for this they do even Brody's upset about it I mean (laughs) I know (laughs) I know. Okay, they so just in, love talking about hormones. <laughs> in women who are made surgically menopausal, say at a at a very early age, I find that they have the most difficulty with treatment uh, with hormone replacement therapy. And I've had several who have hopped from provider to provider, trying to get trying to feel better, right? And they're miserable. Yeah. Yes. Um, this is a, a really special area. I have a, I have a, a longtime patient, a good friend who this is kind of her area of, of angst. And when she was started on transdermal estrogen, she immediately started having like backache, leg aches, you know, kind of cramping. And she's like, I don't even have ovaries in the uterus anymore. What's going on? Oh, <laughs> phantom cramping. That's just unfair. I Right. <laughs> yes. You know, I have such a special place in my heart for anyone with menopause, either premature ovarian insufficiency or early surgical menopause. And what I often find is they simply need a much higher dose than what's typically prescribed for someone going through natural menopause. Now, not always, sometimes it's just playing around with that root or the formulation. But, you know, for example, I will see someone come in with like a 0.375 weekly estradiol patch. And I will probably put her on one, two, or four milligrams of oral estrogen, Um, whatever I need to do, because she's going to need physiologic doses, not postmenopausal doses. And so one of the things that you probably know, but HRT or hormone replacement therapy is really what we use to designate our younger patients or women who are before or under 40. And HT or hormone therapy 
is for our women really kind of going through natural menopause. So it usually comes down to they're on this teeny tiny dose that I might give my 57 year old and I have a 27 year old and they just need a little bit more of a dose. And and to the point about testosterone, sometimes testosterone too. And it's a talk we have with a lot of my younger patients because they also lose that testosterone so early. So you're absolutely right. They have such a tough time. And I think it's perhaps, I guess, that it's physicians feel uncomfortable using such high doses of postmenopausal estrogen. And secondarily, that sometimes they get put on birth control pills, which don't seem to work as well, at least in my experience. But I've never looked head to head what works better. You know, birth control pills, obviously, they're not going to get pregnant, but they're using them for the estrogen and progesterone versus postmenopausal estrogen and progesterone doses. Right. Right. Okay. The last topic I want to talk to you about is postpartum, because I feel like, like, this is where a lot of my patient base, because I do osteopathic adjustments for women and pregnancy and postpartum, this is where it kind of intersects with your world because in that postpartum period, when we're nursing, oh my goodness, Uh (laughs) The hot flashes, the vaginal dryness, like those symptoms seem to all familiar for what we read about menopause, right? And we're like, but what's going on? So you're in the thick of it right now. Talk to us about that. Absolutely. You know, it is, it's, it's very similar to that physiologic drop in estrogen because as we're breastfeeding and immediately, immediately postpartum or estrogen's crashing down, kind of like what's happening in perimenopause at times or and as we go through the menopause transition. And we have a lot of similar symptoms. And it's funny because it is a little window into menopause perhaps. And it doesn't necessarily mean that that's exactly how it's going to happen to you, but it certainly is the same sort of process and the same reason why we get hot flashes, vaginal dryness, low libido, and it's a very interesting state. And so I always say, you know, if things like vaginal estrogen or, you know, local vaginal estrogen is needed for painful intercourse or, you know, even just pain in general, you know, it doesn't have to be reserved for just postmenopausal women. It certainly can, you know, that's where hormone therapy sometimes is helpful um, postpartum. And I do think the postpartum state and, and conditions that happen in throughout pregnancy are so important and definitely may come back. So I have a saying like, what happens in pregnancy doesn't stay in pregnancy. <laughs> so, you know, postpartum depression could be a predictor for mood in yes. uh, perimenopause, menopause. Yeah. Um, dyspareunia could certainly be something that could open your eyes to the effect that like, oh, I have low estrogen or maybe in perimenopause or menopause, you notice that again, you say, oh yeah. And, you know, things like gestational hypertension, gestational diabetes, yes. um, preterm labor like myself, um, can all put us at increased risk for cardiovascular disease. Something else that's a very common chronic thing that kind of parallels as we go into midlife. And so conditions in pregnancy, right, buddy? Don't stay in pregnancy. So I kind of had considered myself pretty healthy until I had a preterm delivery with this little guy here at 30 weeks. So now I have to add that to my medical history. So whenever I'm teaching, whether it's women or residents, it's that pregnancy history is so important. And thinking about these things and noting what happened preconception, if you had infertility treatments or several rounds of IVF and hormones, then, you know, if you had a couple of, if you had miscarriages, if you had any of those 
peripartum and postpartum complications, so important for how you might think or view or see life as you go through the menopause transition. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Oh my gosh. I'm having flashbacks to clinic this morning. <laughs> really? This is so pertinent to so, so many of the patients that I saw. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It is. It's such a continuum. And the way, you know, to kind of like summarize, I do think the way we teach our current clinicians, be it nurses, other healthcare providers, clinicians, is that menopause is this like snapshot in time that sits alone. And it's not, you know, it's this, it's a condition that stems from the beginning of our reproductive cycle and is a little bit like in reverse, but you know, those peripartum complications of those peripartum events, we'll just say, you know, circle back around. So it's all actually a circle. And once we can start teaching it to people in that way and training our clinicians that way, it is my dream. It is my life goal, you know, (laughs) that we really improve the way we look at midlife as a continuum of our reproductive health, not sort of like this one calendar day. It's completely inappropriate. (laughs) Absolutely. It's so much bigger than that. Yeah. Well, tell everybody where they can find you because they're going to want to find you if they don't know who you are already. Oh, thank you so much for having me on this show. And for your listeners, I'm in a couple of places on Instagram. I'm at hormone.health.doc. And I do have a podcast, as you mentioned before, Women's Health by Heather Hirsch. So if you are just want to dig into menopause content. There's so much stuff there, be it for yourself or for a family member or a colleague or a friend. There is so much more to menopause than just natural menopause. And we talked about so many topics in this last 30 minutes or so. So that's why I'm on Instagram. I have a YouTube channel, Health by Heather Hirsch. And I do have a course, The Complete Guide to Menopause. You can access pretty much all of that on my Instagram page or my website, which is also my name. HeatherHirschMD.com. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. And thank you, Brody. (laughs) Thank you. We thank you so much for giving us your time. And Brody's so excited for his first podcast guest appearance. (laughs) It's an honor. Welcome to Sky Women. You're a Sky baby now, Brody. (laughs) Yeah. Just imagine a little baby with his hands up. So that's right. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you again. And keep on doing what you're doing too. Advocacy and this kind of public health information has to come from all different areas. And so thank you for everything you do as well. Oh, thank you so much. Have a great afternoon. You too. Bye everyone. Bye. All right, Sky community. Thank you for listening to another episode. This episode was sponsored by Sky Women's Health. As a reminder, we're in the Dallas-Fort Worth area and we help relieve back pain and pelvic pain in pregnancy and beyond. If you are pregnant and having pain and you feel like you have no reliable way to relieve it, look us up at skywomenshealth.com, request an appointment, and we'll call to get you scheduled. As a board-certified OB-GYN with a Neuromusculoskeletal Medicine Fellowship, I help you realign with hands-on drug-free treatment and relieve pain on the spot without medication. We'll help you maintain these results through your pregnancy and postpartum period. Every pregnant person deserves this, and we are so excited to serve you. You can find us on our website, as mentioned, or on social at Sky Women's Health, or you can call the office at 817-915-9803. That's it for today. Until next week, be well.